Are we getting it there? Hey, there is life. All right. I got to actually turn the belt pack on. Um, kind of helps. Was today not like the absolute most glorious like morning ever? This is, who thinks this is the best day of the year? Right? Unfortunately, I was wide awake from 2 to 5 a.m. going like this, you know, so it kind of negates it all. But um, good morning. Good to see you. It was phenomenal actually waking up with sunlight today instead of in that dismal darkness. And why does it always rain in 43-degree weather on Halloween and they get 65 the day after? Can you answer that one to me? Um, for those of you here today who are liturgophiles, happy All Saints Day, all right? Um, all Saints Day is really the biggest self-serving holiday in existence because according to the New Testament, you are saints. Do you know that? In Christ, you're a saint, so today is really about you, so give it up for you, all right? It I can see you are so delighted with yourself by that level of, uh, that level of response. Guys, I'm, I'm excited for what we're, we're digging into today, the big three out of Paul, okay? Old Testament, New Testament. In the New Testament, 13 of the 27 documents that make up that collection are by this guy that we have been following and who has been leading us into who Jesus is named Paul. Of those 13, there are a big three, three letters that stand out from the rest of the pack um, because of the gravity of them, because of the impact, because of just the comprehensive nature, but mainly because they're long, all right? Three letters that are long, and we are going to look at those three long letters these next coming weeks through November. Today is 1 Corinthians. And my hope today is, is not to go through this book verse by verse. We would leave next daylight savings, all right? Um, my hope instead today is this. I want to give you some tools. I want to give you some kind of 30,000-foot elevation views of what this letter is about and then challenge you to read it for yourself and let God speak to you through the convergence of those things coming together. Does that make sense? So let's take a look. First Corinthians. Paul starts this letter like he does most of his letters with a brief greeting that has embedded within it some clues as to the significance of what he's writing about. Let's take a look. He writes, Paul, all right, called to be an apostle of King Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. So co-written to the church of God in Corinth. Now, now hone in on this second paragraph here. How does he describe Corinth, the church of God in Corinth? To those sanctified, you know what that churchy word means? Basically like a made holy, all right? Made saintly. To those who are saints, to those who have been made holy in Christ Jesus and called to be holy as well. So you are holy and called to be holy together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord, their Lord and ours. Do you know the irony of this beginning? Corinthians? Yeah, that, that ain't them, all right? The Corinthian church was Paul's problem child. Have you ever had a problem child or, or known people? Yeah, I see some parents pointing back there. Um, or, or known people with the problem child. And, and have you ever seen, um, have you ever seen parents patronize the problem child? 
right? They just get into trouble again for like the 400th time. Oh, really? You're a good boy, right? You ever see that kind of stuff? You're like, until you find yourself doing it. This is kind of what Paul is doing here. Oh, Corinth, you're holy. You're sanctified. You're a good boy, right? Corinth is not a good boy. Corinth is Paul's problem child. And any myth that you carry that somehow the first century church in the time of the apostles was like the the, the shining ideal of the kingdom of God gets nuked out of the water by this letter. Now, I want to tell you about these people about these people, about this church, about the situation that they found themselves, about where they lived. Start with a map. If you're looking closely, you can see Jerusalem here, kind of the home base of the church, and Antioch here, kind of the, uh, the Willow Creek of its day. Not really down there in Jerusalem, but kind of this big mothership church up to the north that sent leaders and, and, and people everywhere. And um, Paul was sent out of Antioch on these like epic road trips to spread the gospel and teachings of the apostles throughout the Roman Empire. Paul takes three, possibly four major trips. And on one of them, he makes his way up here into this area of northern Greece called Macedonia. We looked at the Thessalonians in in previous weeks, and we come down here to Corinth, the church to which this letter is written. Now, to understand Corinth, you have to understand some of the significance of their geography. Take a look for a minute at where Corinth is situated. Look at the strategic piece of land this city sits on. To the north, you have Greece, and here you have the rest of Greece, Sparta, if you will. To here, you have all the trade routes from Rome, and if you don't want to go around, you can go through instead to the Aegean right through there. And Corinth sat on an isthmus. They controlled it. The way I want you to think about it is like the Panama Canal, a quick and easy trade route to go from here to there instead of around there. And why don't you want to go around that way? Pirates. And we don't want to deal with them. All right? Now, here's a picture of the canal today. It's about five miles across from end to end, separating the two parts of Greece but connecting the Aegean and the Adriatic. And here's a spatial representation of how deep it is give you a sense of what they've done now. Now, how long do you think it took them to to dig that canal in the first century? All right, they didn't have the canal in the first century. Which begs the question, how do you get ships across a five-mile stretch without the waterway currently dug in? Logs. You did it with logs. Here's what they do. Sailors would pull up, they'd have their ship, they'd pull up into port, and they'd say, we want to get to the other side. You'd pay an exorbitant fee. You would disembark from the ship, and they would literally pull your ship up by ropes onto smoothed out, rounded logs, one next to another, next to another, kind of like a big conveyor belt of rollers, if you will, pulling the ship for five stinking miles 
across these logs far enough so that when the back log is open, you run it around to the front and you keep going. Does that sound like an arduous process to you? Does it make you go, why on earth would anyone do this? Well, again, back to the answer. Why? Pirates. It was cheaper, easier, and more cost-effective to bring your ship up on logs than to risk what you would face going around. And this made Corinth a powerful city, an economically booming city. It made it a cosmopolitan city as traders and merchants and sailors from around the Mediterranean and Roman world would converge at this port town and have to find things to occupy themselves with until their ship made it across. Now, I, I didn't ask for a show of hands at nine. I'm going to do it here. Navy or Coast Guard here? Okay, good. Um, with no offense to any of you who have loved ones maybe in the Navy, let me just ask you, what is the reputation of sailors with too much time on their hands in port towns? Okay, that's Corinth. That's Corinth. And Corinth, among all their other things, was known for their, well, sex trade. Brothels on every corner, waiting for whatever sailor has a few bucks to spare and a few moments to kill. But unlike the way that you would think about it today, in the ancient world, and particularly in Corinth, these brothels, if you will, were often connected to, believe it or not, temples. Whole new definition of going to church, right? Aphrodite, right here. Goddess Aphrodite, one of the patron goddesses of Corinth. You can see some pictures of the ruins of one of her temple. Her temple alone in Corinth boasted over 1,000 employed temple prostitutes that you can go and for a fee, shall we say, worship with, all right, while you were waiting in port. And that was just one of many in this town. So what Corinth developed in the time of Paul was a reputation. And it was a reputation a lot like, um, I don't know, Bangkok, Amsterdam, Vegas, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth kind of thing. In fact, in the ancient world, they had a phrase, and it was just like fantastic. They would say, she's Corinthianized. Man, he used to be such a good boy. He's, he spent too much time in Corinth. Corinthianized became a slogan, a label, a phrase for someone who was just kind of like top to bottom, completely like sold out, decadent, and immoral. And it's in this situation that Paul writes, situated in this city is the Corinthian church to which Paul writes. And I said it before, let me say it again. Any myth or idea that you might have that the first century church was somehow the epitome of God's kingdom on earth is blown away when you read this letter. Start paging through this. You're going to find it's issue after issue after issue. 
And what Paul basically does in 1 Corinthians is he addresses what I kind of like to call this, this laundry list of issues that the Corinthians kind of find themselves affected by and immersed in, partially because of their culture and partially because of how it's rubbed off on them. I mean, you just start listing these. He writes to them about sexual immorality. He writes to them because a lot of them are visiting the prostitutes. He writes to them because a lot of them are going down to these temples and they're going down to these places and they're engaging with whatever's going on there. They're eating meat sacrificed to idols. They're engaging in the pagan revelry. They're, 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 they're shacking up with the temple prostitutes. There's one guy even he has to address who's sleeping with his stepmom or maybe even his mom itself. Just, ew, are you kidding me? Welcome to Corinth. And for those with high bucks who want the Bellagio kind of experience, there's the temple of Aphrodite just waiting. And for everyone else, there's places off the strip. Places off the strip for a few pennies to engage in the world around you. He writes to them about these levels of immorality, but it's more than that. Within that, other things are happening as well. It's like brother on brother. You know, attacking one another. They're biting at each other. They're devouring each other. They're suing each other. They're rushing after God for spiritual gifts, which sounds like a good thing. But they're using these gifts and seeing these gifts as kind of a way to go, I'm better than you. To bring about their own glory instead of something more. Some are forbidding people to get married. Others are saying, eh, it's a big deal if you're married or not. They're messing up basic key doctrines and teachings of Paul, especially things like the resurrection. But all of these issues seem to be rooted in a deeper underlying issue, a divisiveness within this church. Have you ever been a part of a divisive church? A divisiveness within this church filled with factioning, superiority, elitism. And it's all rooted in a failure of these Corinthian believers to grasp what it means to walk in the way of Jesus and him crucified. Let me say that again. All of these issues in this Corinthian church are rooted in an underlying issue of their failure to grasp what it means to walk in the ways of Jesus and him crucified. And what Paul seeks to do is to breathe into them. He seeks to breathe into them and call them back from their own glory to this thing called the cross. See, several times throughout this letter, Paul will call them puffed up. They are puffed up on themselves and putting themselves over each other. Now, I want to show you a picture here today, all right? Here's the thing. Take a look at this. Does that, does that fill you with a sense of awe? Do you look at that and go, 
oh my gosh, that's amazing. I wish I could be like that. I mean, do you look at going, behold, the kingly pufferfish, right? No, I mean, the thing is, like, it's absurd looking, isn't it? I mean, don't you want to hold it in your hand and go, oh, it's so cute. He thinks he's so big, right? And I got to think, when we start puffing ourselves up, thinking ourselves more highly than we ought, is that how God sees us? Oh, look, they think they're so big. Yeah, I don't care who you are here today. I don't care if you're, you're in charge of your own company or a major corporation. I don't care if you're a millionaire. I don't care if you have political influence and, and, and you, have, you have made things happen at a city or county or even state level. I don't care if you're a criminal mastermind and you're pulling the strings behind something and you have an empire on your hands. You know what God looks at and says? Cute little puffer fish thinks he's so big because when we get self-inflated with our own glory, that's what we become. And that's what Paul comes to pop. And that's what the Corinthians were. A bunch of puffer fish filled up on themselves, inflated with their own sense of glory and worth, seeking crowns instead of the cross. It almost seems that their thinking went something like this. Jesus is king, true or false, right? Jesus is king, right? Jesus is king, and hey, I've accepted him as my king too. And the king has come. The kingdom of God is here, right? True or false? True. And I get to be in him. And if I'm in Christ, that must make me a king too. That, you see the logic here? That must make me worthy of glory too. That must mean my time is here now too. Seeking glory. Seeking crowns. Above the law. Out of whack. In a way that Paul comes to deflate. Because Paul's answer to this Corinthian epidemic is Jesus Christ and him crucified. To say it again, Jesus the king, but a king crucified. I love what he says on this one occasion. He says, Jews demand miraculous signs. Remember this from earlier? Jews demand miraculous signs. Glory. Greeks look for wisdom. Their version of glory. But we preach Christ. We preach Christ. Christ means Messiah. Messiah means king. We preach a king, but a crucified king. A stumbling block to those more interested with glory for themselves. Paul's answer to Puffer Finch spirituality is a crucified king. That picture there is what Paul says glory is really all about. 
He says, that right there is God's glory. I love this one story that you can find in the Gospels. Jesus has just finished an extended run of not only teaching but example of what it means that the last shall be first and the first shall be last and that whoever wants to, to, to exalt themselves will be humbled, but whoever wants to humble themselves will be exalted. And, and he showed it to them and, he, and, he's, and he's explained to them how he's going to Jerusalem to suffer and to die because that's what the way of glory is. And immediately when he gets done, I mean, his disciples, they're as thick-headed as we are, you know? Immediately when he gets done, two of his closest... James and John, you know these guys? They come to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, we, we want you to do something for us. We want to ask you something, and whatever it is, we want you to do it. Okay, first, can you just like wrap your head around the audaciousness of that? Hey, Jesus, smart guy. All right, let me hear it first. What do you want? Jesus, when you are in your glory... One of us wants to sit at your right, and the other wants to sit at your left. So they clearly grasped the message of what he was teaching for all those years, right? You know the joke of this is, if you read one of the gospel accounts, they don't go themselves. They send their mom to ask. All right, can I just tell you, if you have to send your mom to ask if you can be great, you are not great, all right? kind of a 101 litmus test going on here. They send their mom to ask, and Jesus comes back and goes, oh, guys, guys, you, 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 you do not know what you are asking. And then he says very cryptically, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Oh, no, Jesus, I see you drink cups all the time. Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm about to undertake? And in there, their, their brilliance and Greek wisdom, they go, yeah. No, he says, you don't know what you're asking because when I am in my glory, do you really want to sit at my right and my left? Because that is what glory looks like to God. And that's what the Corinthians missed. They wanted glory in the way the world thinks. They wanted it now. The king has come. But Paul writes to them that what it means to be in Jesus, this side of eternity, is not the way of crowns, but the way of the cross. As he puts it at one point, if anyone would come after me, Jesus said, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Because for the Corinthians and for any follower of Jesus, the way of him means cross over crown, suffering and sacrifice over glory, holiness ahead of happiness, walking the way Jesus walked and imprinting that on how we do life as well. And it strikes me, how, how different would life be 
if people were seeking crosses instead of crowns? How different would your relationships be? Life at work, home, at school. If people were more interested in the way of the cross than the crown, how would your life be different? What effect would that bring? That's what Paul invites the Corinthians into. That's what he invites you into as well. And my prayer for you is that you engage in these amazing words that Paul had to say as he wrote to this church struggling with this foundational concept to make them your own and to challenge yourself to ask, am I a Corinthian as well? And if you find yourself in that place, Know and remember that Jesus went the way of the cross for you. Which means forgiveness and restoration, repentance, and a call to his way again. I encourage you. Make it that way today so that when the king does come, Paul doesn't look at us and have similar words to say. So um, I invite you to rise. The, uh, the band is going to come forward, and, and here at FOF we have this practice. Let's not just talk about the topic, let's practice it together as well. And maybe I'm speaking to you here today. Maybe it's resonating personally. Maybe you're here guilty of the crown over the cross. Maybe you're here today guilty of any number of those other Corinthian issues as well. Let me reiterate, Jesus went to the cross for you. And the way begins by confessing to him. Just coming to him. Confessing your sins, confessing those failures, confessing those ways, examining yourself in his presence. Know what I mean? I want to invite you to that right now. If you just... Give yourself some, some personal space and bow your head and close your eyes and just block out those around. Bring it to Jesus. Nobody is compassionate, gracious, forgiving. Lay your crowns at his cross. 
and accept what he has done there for you. Would you pray these words with me? Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We justly deserve your present and eternal punishment. But for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. There's a passage that Paul writes that I think he speaks to us in times like these. It's from another letter that he wrote to the Corinthian church, and this is what it says. If anyone is in Christ, a new creation, the old is gone. Whatever issues or sins you brought today, the old is gone in Christ the new is here, and all of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and then gave us that same ministry, the ministry that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, not mine, not yours. And he committed us to this. And so you are Christ's ambassador of that, of what God has done for you. When you witness to that, it's the same as though God was making a direct appeal. He's doing it through you. And Paul says, we implore you, we beg, be reconciled to God. Because God made him who had no sin, his son Jesus, to be sin for us. And in him, we become the righteousness of God. Whatever you've brought here today, at the cross, it is forgiven. You are forgiven reconciled, counted as righteous in him. Make it your life song. Make it your witness. The witness to who God truly is. 
Our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples, and he said, take and eat. This is my body, and it's given for you. Just come and do this in remembrance of me. He took a cup, and he gave thanks, and he gave it to them, and he said, drink of this, all of you. This is my blood of the New Testament. It's shed for you for the forgiveness of all of your sins. Come, do this in remembrance of me. Welcome to the table of the Lord. Welcome to the cross.